This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Card carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Just uh, next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Warden Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome sports fans, welcome statistics fans, welcome business fans, welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Adi Weiner, are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, replayed throughout the week in lots of different places, iTunes, SoundCloud, etc. And of course, we've been on the show for over five years, so all of you know, if you'd like the routine, you can call in. As a matter of fact, Shane and I would love it if you call in. It's very easy to do. All you have to do is call 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And, Shane, you know, we've been building a very nice Twitter following because I've been tweeting quite a bit, at WMoneyBall. That's at WMoneyBall. So how are you doing this morning? Excellent. How are things going with you? Well, I mean, from a statistical point of view, it's a really interesting time because especially, you know, obviously sometimes some combination of the four of us are here every week, but you're being here and the fact that three of the baseball series are now down to coin flips, mm-hmm. I think it's great that you and I will get to talk about this because um, baseball is, you know, right now you know, I have two game fives tonight. We have a game five tomorrow night. And I was going to start out, you know, we always do what caught our eye in sports in the first half hour. Do you put how? What do you put the odds? Let's take each series one by one. Okay, so we have the Cardinals Braves. Now the Braves were I don't know what eight to ten better win team maybe this year than the Cardinals were. Yeah. Um. So how much? And the Braves obviously are at home. How much odds do you put on the Braves right now? And how much? Obviously, the strong default 50-50. Yeah. How far are you? And it's not only because you believe everything's a coin flip, but now we actually have data that the teams are 2-2. So even if we believe that the Braves were 60-40 to start, we have to at least somewhat update that the teams are 2-2. Two two. So yeah, where do you put Yeah, and things? I mean, I think uh, any given playoff game, I mean, when, when I my kind of coin flip sort of mantra or whatever really kind of boils down to, I don't think that any particular baseball game in the playoffs can get to more than, say, 60-40 for any given team. And we are down to one baseball game for each of these series. So over an entire series, you could, like, you know, if you went really, if teams were really 60-40, you could get higher odds of, of, of the better team winning. But in a single game, I don't think it's more than 60-40. And in these particular series, I wouldn't even put it higher than, like, say, 55-45. These are some very evenly matched teams, except for maybe the Tampa Bay-Houston series. I would, I would, I would say that's one where there's kind of the biggest mismatch of all of these teams. Um, and so maybe I would put that one at, like, say, 60-40, but the other ones really are true, I think, close to 50, maybe 55-45. And I hate to bring up this dirty word to us statisticians because you know I'm going to bring up the word momentum. Yeah. And I, I just, by the way, I'm just doing it to make our producer Matt that smile because I'm bringing up the word momentum, which I always like to bring. Of you all the other co-hosts, weight. I'm the most open to your momentum arguments. All right, arguments. so do you put any weight, any weight whatsoever, 
in the fact that the Tampa Bay Rays have won the last two games. So let me just let's just let me just say, I think we both agree going into the series. There's no way that series was fifty fifty. The, right. uh, the Astros were as I don't call it as big a favorite as you can have, but they were a pretty big favorite. Well, let's call it sixty forty for the series. Maybe even yeah. two thirds, one thirds for the series. Not mm-hmm. any given game, but for the series. What do you put it at right now? Um, I mean, so I, I, I have an argument and a counter-argument, I guess, towards their momentum. The argument, I would sort of say, is I think there is sort of like, I mean, there's a collective almost streakiness to hitting in baseball, right? Where a lineup can kind of get hot at the same time, and people, when they are clicking together, that obviously can really help your chance to win. And I do definitely think that is happening for the Rays right now. The counter-argument to momentum in playoffs and baseball is really the most important determinant of a win is, is who's pitching for you. Right. And so, Having you know... Having Cole on the mound's not bad. Exactly. And so, you know, to a certain extent, that that is the type of thing that almost tends to be like an anti-momentum thing, where obviously the way the pitching's lined up, I do think that the pitching heavily favors the Astros in Game 5, starting pitching at least. So I don't think... Again, I would still favor the Astros in that game, but I would not put it over or say 55-45. What would you say about right now? I mean, think about the other one that would have been the other conceived mismatch, the mighty Dodgers yeah. against the Nationals. Yeah. The Nationals have Strasburg on the mound, yeah. and he's given up in his last 23 postseason innings. He's given up one run. Yeah, and I, so and, how do you feel? If, I understand they have Bueller I, I don't going, exactly but how do you feel how, in that no, game? No, I don't exactly know how to feel on that. I mean, I will sort of say I felt like the Nationals all season were kind of an underperforming team, and they seem to have put it all together exactly the right time. So I don't even know if this, that is not as big a mismatch as you know the usual kind of top team versus the wild card team. I think would. And look, you have be. you have your formula for winning. Yeah. You have Scherzer and Strasburg. I know you could beat anybody. Yeah. Matter of fact, you, no, I, I, I wouldn't put them as an underdog in any series they're in if those two guys are pitching well. Well, yeah, and I mean they've got especially with the kind of if if they can roll those guys out as often. I mean, doesn't it, to me that the Nationals right now have this kind of feel of like what the Diamonds back Diamondbacks did I knew you guys always point out, and by the way, this will be wow, a shout-out to my son, Ben Bradlow, yeah. who always reminds me, probably, I'd say, three to four times a week, the year the number 2001 yeah. comes up in our household, because it's obviously a painful moment right. for me. I was going to say the same thing. They remind me of the 2001 Randy Johnson, Kurt Schilling. I mean, I think back to that series, and you were paying more closely attention to it, obviously, back in the day. But I honestly think back to that series, and I cannot think of another Diamondbacks pitcher other than Randy Johnson, Kurt Schilling. It seems like they basically were out there every game. And if they can, if the Nationals choose to, they can basically ride those guys into the ground for the extent of these playoffs. I look, I completely agree. Now, I want to do something. I want to do a mathematical thing with you, but it obviously relates to the one series we have yet to talk about that did end in three. So let me ask you a question. So let's imagine that A equals B. So let's have two entities. Let's call one A and the other B, and A equals B, and then A always beats B. Now, obviously, I'm referring to A being the Yankees, B B being the Twins. So I wanted to go through, since we're a statistics and sports show here at Morton Moneyball, and again, if you want to join the conversation, if you have any observation from the MLB playoffs or anything else, you can call Shane and me. Uh, Please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Here on Sirius XM 132, we love callers. But I wanted to take you through a set of statistical arguments about why A could essentially be equal to B, 
but A always beats B. So here's some arguments I want. I, I want to take you through them yeah. one by one and see your agreement. One might be, of course, that actually we have a measurement issue, meaning maybe A is not equal to B. Right. Maybe A is much better than B. So even though they ended up with roughly the same number of wins this year, and even every time they've played, the Yankees have been more wins, but not a ton more wins. So how much weight, I've got about six arguments, but how much weight do you put in maybe, maybe A and B weren't equal. For example, maybe the no. Twins playing in an awful division and racking up wins against the Royals and Tigers, etc. Maybe they're really, an, maybe win-loss is not, we're a statistical, maybe it's not a very good metric, and maybe Yankees were much better than the Twins. 103 wins in that division is worth a lot more than 101 in that division. And I do think the Yankees were better than the Twins for all the arguments that you've just made. Um, but again, I would say like going any one game my argument would be I, I would not put the Yankees more than, like, say, 60-40 over the Twins in any one game, even though they are the better team. All right, so let me just tell so you. That is, I, I, I've heard two different numbers. I've done the calculations if the Yankees have won 13 straight games against the Twins. I've heard 12. I've heard 13. Matt, I'll put up on my screen which one it is. I thought it was 13. But just to give you an example, if you flip the coin 13 straight times, okay? Yeah. What's the chances at a point six? That's what the yeah. calculation I did. That you would get thirteen heads in a row. It's pretty infinitesimal. Well, small. it's not that small actually. Is it? It's well, it's one in a thousand. Okay, one in a thousand. If you lower that to point five five, it's four in ten thousand. Yeah. So, to me, the if you just now, we're making assumptions. This is what I want to talk yeah. to you about. We're making an assumption of constant probability. Now, let's take them one by one. Do you believe now that, I don't want to call it in the minds of the Twins, but at some point you have to say, maybe when they're facing the Yankees in the playoffs, it's not constant probability. Maybe they behave, so let me keep going through yeah. my arguments. Maybe A equals B in the regular season, but A is not equal to B in the postseason. How much weight would you put on that argument? I, I mean, I have to kind of give, I mean, there has to be something to kind of explain this, or I mean, other than that it could just be that one in a thousand chance, but I do think that there is something psychologically going on here, because I mean, I it's not just me that had the aura of inevitability of this, everybody sort of felt this way about the, the, the Twins versus the Yankees, and I, I, I can only imagine they lose game one, and they say to themselves, here we go again. Right, and they lost game one in a, you know, very convincing way. Oh, both way. of them. I think it was like 18-6 in terms of runs after game it was. one. Yeah, it was like yeah. 10 to 4, yeah. maybe 8 to 2, something like that. Yeah, I mean, like none that. of those games were, I mean, certainly those games weren't game close. Game three, of course, had the Twins scored in the second inning when they had bases loaded and no outs. That yeah. might have changed the thing. Um, so let me ask you another possibility. Another possibility is wins-loss is a what I call a unidimensional scale. In other words, it's one number. Higher is better. Maybe baseball is really a multidimensional scale. Like we talk about mm -hmm. pitching, yep. hitting defense. So maybe the Yankees are just a little bit better on all of these scales. And when two teams play and one team has got better pitching, better hitting, and better defense, maybe that team does win 60-65% of the time. Yeah, and I mean, I think it could be also, and maybe this is going to be a separate point of yours, but I'll just bring it up anyway, that the Yankees may actually kind of just sort of particularly match up well against That's the Twins more than some sort of, you know, kind of two, ra two random 60-40 teams or whatever may not have quite as much of a probable high probability outcome for a sweep like this, but maybe the Yankees actually kind of 
particularly match up well against the Twins. And whether you call it momentum or not, I think in this case, I'm actually willing to call it non-stationarity. I think both of us agree. And by the way, this is the whole thing about statistics, which is good for us to discuss for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball. First of all, if I didn't do the calculation, if that number were 0.7 instead of 0.6, notice from point, so we all agree one in a thousand is rare. Yeah. yeah, one in a thousand is pretty damn rare. But if, when it was 55%, it went to one in twenty five hundred. Yeah. At sixty percent, it was one in a thousand. If I were to change that, I could during the break I'll yeah. do it. If I do it to seventy percent, it might all of a sudden be, yeah, we see those kind of one in a hundred, one yeah. in two hundred events all the time. It's not that rare. Yeah, and by it'd be way, like one, I don't think one, would, every, one every twenty years or something like that in baseball, right? Right. But my point is it doesn't take much. Also, we could make an argument. Eric, do you really think the third game of this series was only 60%? Yankees probably had a 90% chance to win yeah. that. I'm saying, it does, no, no, because then it's 0.6 to the 12th. Yeah. It's not 0.6 to the 13th. Even if you just take away a couple of coin flips, then all of a sudden, it's, it's rare, but yeah. it's not like, wow, I can't believe it's been 13 straight games. Oh, I can't believe it's been eight or nine straight games. Yeah. All right, well, that's, you know... So I'm saying, I, the reason I wanted to talk to you about it is there's so many statistical explanations you could use that would make it not as rare as it seems. That was my only point. Yeah, no, and I, I agree. And I mean, I think that it's it's I kind of didn't help the the, the conversation by kind of giving it this air of inevitability before the playoffs because I really did believe it would kind of go down this way. I didn't necessarily know they would be swept. I mean, I thought maybe the Twins would actually win a game or something like that in the series, but I had no confidence that they would win the series. Yeah, thanks the to Yankees. our. Yeah, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz. It is 13 straight to the wow. Yankees and 16 Incredible. straight overall. Yeah. That, to me, actually, and matter of fact, apparently it ties the Blackhawks from 75 to 79 in hockey for the most consecutive postseason losses. Oh, wow. That's a fun, fun hockey fact I did not realize. That's but great. But that's actually, I mean, if you think about it, I don't know how to rationalize it except to be extremely rare. It's got to be at some point. I don't want to, if you want to call it mental, I, I'm not going to say the causation. There mm. has to be a non stationary To lose 16 consecutive postseason games yeah. is extraordinarily it's, it's extraordinary. difficult to do, especially when many of them have been at home. I'm sure, by the way, there have been many of those games. I don't know how many, where mm. the Twins might have been favored because oh, yeah. of the pitching matchup in the game. No, of course. I mean, I, there, there had to be a few years in there where they had, like, Johan Santana on the mound or something That's like that. That's not a bad per And exactly. he was definitely favored against any, oh, anybody. Unless it was anybody. Sabathia, maybe, yep. in his prime. That's maybe right. that would have well, been Well, he a was uh, for the Indians, not the Twins, right? Oh, back in those days? Well, yeah. I mean, Sabathia has been on the Yankees since 2008. Oh, I thought you meant uh, Sabathia playing for the Twins No, 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 no. So, but either way, I just thought that was an interesting statistic. Yeah, no, fact. and it is. I mean, it is kind of fascinating how they, you know, I mean, that is the one series that I kind of felt would be the biggest mismatch in the playoffs, and certainly did prove to be that so, in the division series. So let's now talk about the statistical implications of this series. So how much more favored... How much more odds do you give the Yankees now, given yeah. that they've won in three? Whoever they're playing, the A's or the uh, Rays or the Astros, will have gone five. The Astros will have burned, at least if they win, they'll have burned at least for the first game, Garrett Verlander Cole. and Cole. Yep. Verlander can't pitch game one. Matter of fact, we could debate whether he, I guess he could probably pitch game two. How much increase, and the Dodgers are possibly in the yeah. same particular situation. If the Yankees were, let's just say right now, whoever wins, there'll be four winners. We all agree to that. There will be yeah. four winners going to the next round. 
How much above 25%, if any, do you put the Yankees right now? Oh, I put them, uh, you know, I mean, again, I would not put them against the Astros. I would not put them in the series any higher than 60-40. I'm going to stick to kind of my baseline. You wouldn't baseline. put them that high. But I put, I, no, I, I think against the, if, if, they, if the Astros make it through, uh, I would you think put the it. Astros are not, they don't have, you do not have the Astros as favored in that series. Not, not because of what, exactly what happened. I mean, I would have put like, I might have slightly favored the Astros over the Yankees, like, you know, all things being equal, but all things are not equal now. As you just observed, the Astros are going to be going in with you know, unable to use Garrett Cole and probably Justin Verlander for games one and two, and that's a that's a substantial disadvantage. And I think that pushes the Yankees probably to like something like fifty five forty five over the Astros. Yeah, I think. And Verland- if the Rays make it through, then it, then I go up to sixty forty right, for the I Yankees. That, I think the Verlander's likely to be able to pitch game two. He pitched Tuesday, and so you know Sunday would be game two. Yeah, and I, so I, that's I don't. The I mean, he, rest. he could potentially, but I even think he's not going to be pitching at his best if he does happen to pull that off. Yeah, so it has right here, by the way, the Yankees, it has this plus 120, the Astros. So it still has the Astros' as favorite. Yo, I I, I kind of saw that, and I was a little surprised by that. That A, because they aren't even through, the, you know, they've essentially got a coin flip just to make it to the next series tonight. So I kind of feel like those odds must not have updated for the fact that the Yankees are through and the Astros are not. But I, I, either regardless, way. I do think that the Yankees are... are Of all the four teams in the playoffs remaining, I think they are the favorites to win the World Series, would I put them higher than, say, 30%? Probably not. Right. Okay, yeah. so, let's, so let me just, just recap baseball, because we're going to move on. And, and Shane used a great word that's going to help us transition to the next topic, which is coin flip, which we'll talk about yeah. in another sport in just a second. But just to summarize the statistical arguments we've talked about this morning to our fans, um, maybe the Yankees beating the Twins is a very rare statistical event 13 times in a row, but we've talked about why maybe it's not as rare as you would think. That's number one we've talked about. Um, Two, we talked about, is there anything in Game 5 that favors the better team in the regular season? And is there home field versus momentum, if you'd like? We could argue that. And your view is, and I think I agree with this, is there probably is an effect, but it's no way as large as people want to give the psychology of it. In other words, you wouldn't put probably any of these games more than 55-45. Right, and I mean, anything that, I mean, to be honest, I keep keep making a distinction between 55-45 to versus 60-40, to and like in a long-run sense, there is a real difference there that, you know... Yeah. One can talk about, and we get interested in our probability modeling about. But as far as like actually observing a single game outcome, those those two things are essentially indistinguishable. Right, right, that, that's right, right. Well, that's so a separate discussion for a different time, and I'll come yeah. back with the calculation. Is how many games would you need to observe to statistically notice an effect size yeah. of 55-45 versus 60-40? And let right. me tell you, it's a lot more it's games that is played in any baseball, any single baseball series. So again, this is Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen. Uh, some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Adi Weiner, here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. If you want to join the conversation, if you have a baseball thing to talk about, or we're certainly going to talk about football in just a few minutes, you can call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. I wanted to transition to another topic related to a coin flip. So someone here has to help me. Maybe our associate producer and sound engineer Martin Waga can help me. Maybe our producer Matt Datz can help me. But someone's got to help me where you're in a football game, and there's this thing called overtime. (laughs) And then what happens is that you win the coin flip in overtime. Now, just to remind our fans the rules. 
if you score a touchdown in overtime in an NFL game, the game is over. If you score a field goal, the other team gets a chance to score a field goal, unless time is gone. Because you know, right. I'm not saying it's a, it's likely, but you could have a 10 minute drive, you could have an eight or nine minute drive in football yep. that could grind up most of the clock, where you could score a field goal and the other team gets the ball, but only has a minute, a minute and a half left. Someone explained to me. I'm just trying to think of any statistical argument where the Steelers won the coin flip and then deferred and deferred. Yep. Someone's got to explain that to me. It has. It's happened before. I'm trying to remember. This is not the first time it's happened, but it's pretty unprecedented. Well, let's, let's talk about what would no, because this is what. Let me just say, it's not as much what statisticians do, because yeah. what statisticians will do is they'll look at the long run odds. They'll say it makes little sense. You could do a simulation, etc. But what do economists do? And this is I, I say this with a compliment. They're going to try to rationalize that behavior. So yeah. what is it that you would have to say that would rationalize that behavior? What what is it that would take it for you to rationalize that that was actually a better than 50-50 thing to the do? The one thing that I could possibly say that would rationalize that behavior is if you're incredibly fearful of a turnover, then you could maybe argue for not getting the ball first because the other kind of exception to the sort of touchdown wins field goal does not win is if you turn the ball over then uh, the, the you know if you have the first possession of overtime you turn the ball over then the other team only needs a field goal and especially if you turn the ball over on that first possession it's almost like a guaranteed loss because you're probably in already field goal range for the other team so i don't I, again this is a pretty weak rationalization but we're stuck with weak rationalizations because it was a crazy move um would be that you're particularly fearful, I guess, of a turnover on that first drive. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that, that then the other team wins yeah. with a field goal. But, I mean, the odds of a turnover in the NFL aren't that high. Yeah, no, I mean, it would have to be kind of a game. So, well, and this is why almost nobody defers, you know. But I, I, for this particular game, one could, I guess, that would be maybe an argument. I'm not even sure what, but someone whether says, that was I have, the actual I, And Martin typed on the screen, which yeah. is great. Martin said, trust your defense. Okay, yeah. I can trust my defense, but eventually my offense, unless you're counting on the other team turning it over, yeah. my offense eventually is going to have yeah. to move the ball. So even if I, let's say I get the ball and I trust my defense, all right, so the other team's going to punt the ball away and I'm probably going to end up with no better field position than I started. You start, let's say there's a kickoff, it's a touchback, you start at the 25-yard line. If you stop the other team at the 30, they punt it, odds are you're going to get it at about the 25-yard line. So it's not a field position argument. You're going to get yeah. it at roughly the 20 to 30-yard line either way. I just, I just couldn't believe it when I saw it. The other thing we could think about at least is I don't actually remember, like I was not watching this game closely, whether there was a substantial wind effect. Because the one thing is that if well, you defer point. Great point. possession, you, get you to do choose. get to choose which end of the field you're on. I still don't think there there couldn't be enough of a wind effect to kind of make that like a rational argument to defer. But maybe that was part of the decision making. I don't know. Yeah. The, the, the one rule. Now, look, we've talked about this in college football, which is very different. Yes. In college football, you pretty much want to go second yeah. because you know what you need. Because yes. everybody gets the same number of opportunities. But that's not what happens yeah. here. And that's where the design of the mechanism really plays a role in strategy in the game. Because uh -huh. you agree, if this were college, yeah. of course you want to defer. Which, but, uh, we, uh, if you, Since we're talking about which mechanism do you actually like, like, which kind of overtime system do you actually prefer? 
I think I like the college system. I like both teams having an equal opportunity to win the game. I even like the fact that they alternate who goes first in rounds. Mm -hmm. I like the fact that after a certain point in time, they make you go for two. I think it's in the third time, the third overtime or whatever they call it. Uh, They call each of them. I actually also like the fact that you start from not your 25-yard line, but I think it's there. I forget if it's 20 or 25, wherever you start from. Matt's at 25. It's essentially just a battle of red zones. Yeah, that's good. Who wouldn't want that except maybe the Vegas betting people and maybe people in fantasy games where all these points get end up jacked up because Yeah, no, what I mean but but you could almost like you know, I mean if that was really the if, if fantasy was the counter argument, you could always just make rules where overtime right, doesn't less. count towards fantasy or something less. like that. Uh but no, I, I, I kinda like the the college system certainly I think is more exciting and it is a little bit more balanced, as you said. I think the main proponents or the people who argue against the college system is that it just ends up being not a very good emulation. It, it, it's like right. an entirely different kind of sport in overtime time like it's not like real football anymore it's because, not like real football because you're just playing red zone possessions you're, you don't have to actually go up and down the field and stuff like that so i think the people who kind of argue for the more nfl system are the ones that are like well it's 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 a little bit more like drives and drives in overtime in the nfl are kind of like drives in the re- in, in the regular part of the game you know so i, I but I, I i think i'm with you i kind of i slightly prefer the uh overtime rules in college even though i mean my my Team, the Patriots have very much benefited from the overtime rules in the NFL. Yeah, I just thought it was a. It they was always just... they always take the ball, by the way, and then they go and score a touchdown. No, I get it. Yeah, and and by the way, the thing that I like about the Patriots is you have no doubt in your mind when it goes to overtime, which I'm not going to sure there's going to be any overtime games this year for them. But when they goes to overtime and they get the ball, trust me, Bill Belichick's not thinking. Let's score a field goal yeah. and give the other team the ball. No, no that's right. they're going to try to score a touchdown and end the game. You don't try to. You don't try to. You know. I, I agree with Martin. Trust your defense. And by the way, why don't we spend a few minutes just you know in homage to you? Yeah. How historically great do you think their defense is? Look, at some point in time, I think they've given up less than seven points a game on average. Yeah. So at some point in time, we have to start saying, "Is this?" I'm not saying it's the '85 Bears. I'm not yeah. going to say it's the 2000 and whatever one Ravens. Maybe it is. They, maybe are, it they isn't. are giving up less points per game than either of those two no, teams I know, right but now. To, but it's, but, it's, it's five games. Who but, they've yeah, played? And, and it's really about who they've played, and that's the biggest thing that I think keeps us from discussing whether or not this is an historically great defense. I mean, or I know not. they've played you, Dolphins, tell- Jets, Bush. Uh, Buffalo. Buffalo's a good team, but not but a great not offensive on team. Um, I mean, Pittsburgh, before Big Ben went down, that's probably the best offense that they've played. Um, and who did they just beat? The Redskins. The Redskins. I mean, oof. Yeah, so let me ask you a question. I was, I was going to relate to oof. that. So the, the two undefeated teams you just mentioned, and we, and we both agree, the Patriots going into Buffalo and winning, turns out that that may end up being a very good win. Yeah. But you just said it. They beat the Jets, no good. The Dolphins, no good. The Redskins, no good. And the other one was the Steelers. The combined number of wins of those four teams is one. It's one. No, Buffalo's one. No, oh, no, you, you're, you're taking Buffalo. away Buffalo. Yeah, okay. So this is what I wanted yeah. to ask you. And this, I was going to ask you yeah. the same question. It was the next topic on my list. There's two undefeated teams in the NFL. I call them the Patriots and the team that had the the Patriots quarterback. Yeah, yeah. So that's but it was a great weekend for a Patriots quarterback. Oh, Patriots Brissett, next right? Brissett, Gar- Garoppolo, and uh, Brady won. The Wolfpack all won. Yeah, but I want to ask you a question. So here's who the 49ers have beaten. 
the Bucks, <coughs> the Bengals, the Steelers, and the Browns. So now my question to you is, is either of those teams any good? Like, how good do you think? Like, yeah. how much do you think we know about yeah. how I mean, good they I are? Mean, there, right. We agree. There's no. There's probably no statistical model you could build that would suggest that those teams aren't very good. But do you have any evidence yet of wow? This might be. No, I don't think anybody thinks the Forty Niners are a historically good team. But do you put like if I told you right now those teams were clearly in the top five and maybe clearly two of the three best teams in the NFL. Do you think there's enough evidence to suggest that yet? No. I mean, yes, yes in the Patriots sense only because they were a top three team last year. And, I mean, their their point differential is, is, is incredible in the games that they played. But, I mean... Do I think that they're definitely going undefeated or anything like that? Or they're a historically great team? No, I do not think I've seen enough yet. With the 49ers, I'm even more skeptical just because, you know, they're they're coming from a place. And, of course, we know what has led to them being much better this season. Garoppolo's back. But they just equaled their win total from last season. They're the first team this year to equal their win total from last season. Um, and so they come in, came into this season as not a good team. Um and you know, they've shown some real signs of being a good team. But as you sort of said, the competition that they've faced so far has been middling at best. I mean, I do think, I, I don't know exactly, no, nobody really knows what to make of the Cleveland Browns, but I think that was a legitimate big victory and a very resounding one. They looked fantastic in that game, or the Browns looked very bad either way. Um, and then again, I don't know, I think the Steelers, both team, both the Patriots and, and, and uh, 49ers have beaten the Steelers. I think the Steelers are better than their record suggests as well. I mean, obviously they are down to their third-string quarterback, but they have a really good – they have an excellent defense. Well, we're going to find out a little bit this week. I think they're at the Rams. I think it's 49ers at Rams oh, this week. Oh, that'll be telling. That's so wonderful. So that's going to yeah. say – I mean, the Rams were the other team in we're the Super Bowl last year. We're going to have to wait a couple more weeks, I think, before we see the Patriots face any competition. But they will. It's finally coming, people. You don't have to worry. The Patriots will finally start playing real teams in a few weeks. I, I, I think they've got a string where they play the, like, the Ravens, the Chiefs, the Cowboys, and the Eagles all in like – four weeks straight or something like that. So that'll be the time where we are a better able to evaluate whether the Patriots are a historically good team. And really what we're evaluating is is, the, is this defense kind of this historically great defense. And so, they'll finally be playing some real offenses. So let me ask you a question just in our last minute or yeah. two before the break. We talked about in baseball, you would never put a team probably greater in any single game than 60-40, maybe two-thirds, one-third. Yeah. What about in football? So let's take an example. The Patriots are playing the Giants this week uh, on Thursday night. Yeah, the the Patriots are a seventeen point favorite, which I think has got to put them at about at least seventy thirty, maybe seventy five twenty five. Would you ever? So, why in your mind is football different? Like for example, if the Patriots played the Dolphins right now yeah. at home, you'd probably put the Patriots. I mean, I'm not even sure 90% is enough. Yeah. Why is football so different than baseball? Or is is football the sport in your mind that you would put the large... Like, would you ever put a basketball team at 90%? No. Well, put... yes, yes. So basketball might be. I mean, I think... 
I, I, w- I, I think it's different because, I mean, specifically that 60-40 rule that I have for coin flips is playoff baseball, where we've already huh. selected out the bad team. So, I mean, Great like, point. you put the Yankees against the Kansas City Royals this season, I would put that above 60-40. It's really about playoff baseball and the fact that you kind of—so, and in playoff football, I would be hesitant to put things much above 65-40-35 or something like that. I would put things slightly higher even amongst two relatively— evenly matched teams in football just because I do think there's structurally, I I think there's more to like the, there's more ways. I I think there's less stochasticity or less randomness. I think in any one football game than there is in any one baseball game. Well, I, I, I happen to agree with you, and it was a good point about the selection of teams mm-hmm. out. So this has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. That means we have three quarters to go. Stay with us and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where my three favorite topics, sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my friend and co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Adi Weiner here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. If you want to join the conversation, and a lot of you may want to call in for our next guest, you can call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And we're a great follow on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. Well, Shane, as you know, one of the things I've always loved about our show over the last five years is not just that I get to talk to you, but we get to talk to thought leaders in the world of analytics from the world of sports. And our next guest is no exception. Uh, we're honored to have Field Yates on Wharton Moneyball. Field is a ESPN NFL insider, someone that I watch every week uh, on ESPN2 on his on the Fantasy Football Now pregame show. He's co-host of ESPN's Daily Fantasy Focus podcast. And, well, one of the teams you love, um, he worked for the Kansas City Chiefs, and he also spent four years with the New England Patriots. So, Field, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. Shane and Eric, good morning. Thank you to both of you for having me on. Looking forward to talking a little bit of everything here, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's great to have you on, and I said you are a stable in my household to show you how the world of sports, I have three sons, but to show you how the world of sports has changed. Um, most of us watch the fantasy football pregame now as opposed to, I'll call it, the more traditional uh, pregame. And so that's one of the things I wanted to start to talk to you about. So let's just start with your background. Like, how did you make your way to the world of sports, the world of fantasy sports, the world of statistics? How did all of that happen to you in your career? Well, there's something funny that I think has changed. And, and sometimes I find myself hesitating to making statements about how the world of sports or the world in general has changed over a defined period of time uh, because I don't want to think that the world is viewed through the prism of just myself. So maybe this is too much of a generic statement, but I believe that over the past 10 years, we have started to look at football and fantasy football and football analytics, uh, maybe even gambling involving football as sort of one big parallel prism as opposed to football is different from fantasy football which is totally different from football analytics that you couldn't necessarily subscribe to all of those theories concurrently now as i look at the work that we do um you know for fantasy football for example if i have a story about the tennessee titans signing 
uh, a new offensive tackle, one of the first questions I might get is, what does it mean for the running value of Derrick Henry? Is this an improvement? Is this a, you know, a detriment to their offensive line? So I think that where we are now is a state where everybody kind of just views all football information as one whole. But uh, more specifically to my past, you know, I had always wanted to work in scouting um, or coaching in the NFL. I had some time with the Patriots that you mentioned. I also spent some time with the Kansas City Chiefs. And both of those opportunities was, uh, was cutting my teeth um, sort of as a, uh, an entry-level scout, entry-level coach to get the – I always tell people it was kind of like learning how to speak the language. It was my football Rosetta Stone at the beginning of each of those opportunities. Um, I would love to tell you that I had this uh, master plan that you know started in the NFL and make my way to ESPN. It wasn't that linear. There were some curves and bumps along the road along the way. But, um, you know, there's been a, a really fun track over the past know, seven or eight years now that I've been at ESPN that's led me to where I am right now. So can you give us a sense of what it's like to be, whether it's coach in the front office of an NFL team? Like we always like to ask all of our you know guests that are, we call them NFL insiders, if you'd like. Like Shane and I believe that analytics is driving a lot of what's going on in the NFL today. Are we a little bit delusional? Is it still more... I see what I see, that's how we make decisions, or how much do you think analytics really has become, if you'd like, at least one the common a, language, yeah, the, the common, common language of, of football yeah. today? I think if we wanted to, we could probably have a 24-hour podcast or a 24-hour radio segment about just defining what analytics are. Um, because I think that's maybe the first part of this equation is like, when, you, when people ask how much do analytics play a role, I think it's sort of defining what we mean by analytics. But what I would say is that rarely is a coach making a decision or a GM making a decision purely on gut or instincts, right? I think that within the course of the game or a game, there are times where you don't have you know, three to five minutes to, to sort of meticulously think through a potential decision, and instead you are relying more upon what is present in the moment. That might be more of a quote-unquote gut call, but so many of the decisions that are made in front offices by coaching staffs are driven by data that has been collected over years or in the case of, you know, when coaches go in for their breakdowns, when we talk about breaking down tape, that's another one of those terms that's kind of become loosely defined, but In coaching parlance, breaking down tape is usually done uh, by the quality control coach on either side of the football and what that coach is responsible for leading into, let's take, for example, the Eagles playing the Vikings this week. The quality control coach on either side of Philadelphia's uh, offense and defense probably spent all day Monday, or maybe maybe, maybe just about, or all day Monday. uh, Yeah, I was thinking they played on Thursday, but yes, all day Monday after their Sunday game against the Jets and broke down the last four games of the Vikings, and then breaking them down. It's assigning each coverage um, for the defense, assigning stunts and fronts and blitzes and anything else that happened. And then you have essentially a four-game sample size. So, you know, if you want to consider that analytics for when the Eagles are now applying, all right, on second and five or longer, the Vikings run cover two this percentage of the time versus cover four this percentage of the time, then I think, yeah, all this stuff sort of ties in together. So another question I want to ask you is, what role does it play with you? I'll just use a field. I'll use the example you used. So the Tennessee Titans sign another offensive lineman. 
Uh, you want to know its impact on Derrick Henry. Uh, you might get that question on, uh, you know, whether it's on ESPN2 or on Fantasy Football Now, what you're doing. And all of a sudden, you want to come up with an answer that is plausible. Like, are there, I'm just making this up, are there a team of, let's call it data analysts at ESPN that within, let's call it some real time, a minute, two minutes, can say, field, this would be a reasonable approximation of what would happen? How, how does analytics make its way into what you do, whether it's on air or in preparation for on air? Yeah, I, so specific to the example of an offensive lineman, I don't think we're quite there yet. ESPN has developed what they call a pass rush win statistic. Um, and the inverse of that, I suppose, is the pass block win statistic. And what it does is it assigns responsibility in each play along the offensive line of who that player is to be blocking and vice versa. So we have a better feel for how effective a pass rusher is or a pass blocker is. I still think, though, that um, there's a lot of gray area there. And so what I don't want to do is ever be dismissive of analytics in football because they play an an integral role um, in a lot of aspects. What I also think is true is that there are certain areas of sports that are more difficult to quantify than others. So on offensive line play, for example, I know I've talked to a lot of coaches that feel like, you know, grading these players individually on a play-by-play basis is much more difficult to do without an intimate understanding of the scheme, the call, uh, the execution, and what might look to us like faulty right tackle play on one play might actually be that the right guard went left when he was supposed to go right, and all of a sudden it made the right tackle look like he was on an island of playing poorly. So um, I think we're still working and developing, but I think that every day we have more people, I I was going to say sort of on the outside, which meaning like not working for teams that are developing metrics, plus we have teams that are themselves continuing to workshop metrics that I think we're finding more ways to become smarter and smarter by the year. So, Field, I only say this jokingly, but this no, it's not a problem. Can't we just get all the video absorbed by artificial intelligence, motion detectors on each player's, have all the coaches mic'd up so we know what play is called, right? It's not a problem, yeah. right? Can't we just do that? Right. I say it jokingly, but in theory, you no, could yeah, imagine a day where if all of that data were to come together, you'd know where every player is on the field, you'd know what exactly what play was called, conceptually you'd know what route some, a player was supposed to take, you'd have the video which uh, artificial intelligence engine could absorb. So I know you and I both joke about we're not there yet, but it's not like it's impossible to imagine a day where that happens. Well, I think we're going to continue to, like, if we think we're in the information era now, like, where are we going to be in five years with so much more data, so many more tools available to us? Um, it, you're right. It, it, we're sort of, you know, I think what the most important part is, is that there is a um, an appetite, right? Like, we're super desperate for more information, but, like, in a good way, right? Um, whereas, I don't know that, like, we were fiending for some of the information that we're now finding, Um as much five or 10 years ago. And I'll be honest with you guys, I do believe fantasy football has contributed to that in a major way because people are asking the same question that you asked me about, like, how do we quantify 
whether an offensive tackle makes a running back a better or inferior player. Um, you know, we have some metrics to sort of evaluate offensive line play, and we have some metrics to evaluate running back efficiency, but we're still there. Whereas right now, we're still not there, I should say. Like, we have things like yards per carry after contact, which is an approximation of, like, how effective a running back is getting yards that, quote-unquote, aren't blocked for him. But still, like, that's, that's a – to me, it's a really important and useful stat – but it also feels like a stat that lends itself to even more information going forward. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen. We're talking to Field Yates. Field is an ESPN NFL insider and co-host of ESPN's daily fantasy Focus podcast. He also appears weekly. For anybody in my household, we know this well. He appears weekly on Fantasy Football Now pregame show Sunday mornings on ESPN2 from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern. Field, this is uh, Shane Jensen. I, I was kind of curious because we are kind of talking about, obviously, you know, we're almost in the infancy of how much information is 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 transcending the sport of football. What do you kind of think is the next couple kind of iterations or incremental kind of imp- changes in that? Like, what are you sort of seeing in the next six months, year, couple years that's really going to kind of blow our minds as far as like new, either in fantasy football or or you know uh, regular football um, coming out. I think there's a chance that fantasy football leads the way only because I think people are willing to sort of um, to explore and like the, you know, the consequences of us experimenting with data and fantasy are a lot different than those of us who are experimenting in real football. Right. So for example, um, I want to say a couple weeks ago, maybe it was, it was Ravens versus chiefs. Uh, John Harbaugh, the Ravens head coach, they were down by nine. Uh, they scored a touchdown and they went for two. And I think a lot of people were surprised. You know, if you're down by nine and you go for two, you're still down. Like, what does it accomplish for you, right? Um, and analytically, it was a sound decision. The idea being pretty simple that, like, you know, your chances of winning, I think that the concept as it described to me was that Basically, hey, like your chances of winning in overtime in any game, especially against an opponent like the Chiefs, you know, are, are, are minimal as compared to coming back and, you know, winning the game in regulation. Anyways, it's, it's, a, it's a poorly described answer. But analytically, the decision was supported. But the problem is that, like, what if a decision to go for two, like, you know, Mike Vrabel last year went for two against the Eagles in that game. Um, I believe it was middle of the regular season last year. And the Titans won going for two. But if they just kick, you know, you kick the extra point, the game is over. If they don't kick that extra point and people, you know, are, are, are fighting back, why would you go for two? It makes no sense whatsoever. So the problem is that um, in real football, like, there are jobs at stake. Whereas in fantasy football, not that our jobs aren't important, but, like, our jobs are not determined by wins and losses on Sunday. So if we can develop analytics and, you know, I look to someone like my friend, Mike Clay, who works at ESPN with us, who has worked tirelessly to develop a couple of really neat uh, uh, analytics, including uh, expected fantasy points or OTD, which is basically an opportunity to score a touchdown. You know, like, Hey, Julio Jones may have only had three touchdowns last season, but if you look at the number of end zone targets he got, or the number of times he was tackled at the one yard line or, the sheer number of targets he's getting, 
it suggested to you that he should have had seven, which is really useful data to predict, you know, regression um, in from one season to the next or one week to the next. So I think fantasy football is a chance to continue to be a pioneer for us in that regard. I think it would be uh, we would be remiss given who you are and that we have you on the line if we didn't ask you a few questions. I want to get to the regular season in just a second and what you've observed, but I have to. We have to like either debunk or you have to verify certain you know I'll call it principles or things that Moses came down on the tablets and said about fantasy football. So let's just get started. Um, never take quarterbacks early because there's not that much variation in the amount of fantasy points of a quarterback. How do you think about that? I so this assumes you know generic scoring, not not six point passing touchdowns or three hundred plus yard premium. Uh, if we're talking about four points for a passing touchdown, with um, you know twenty five yards equals one point, then yes, it's rare for me to advocate for taking a quarterback early. It is still possible that Patrick Mahomes could do something crazy and ridiculous and end up with fifty touchdowns at the end of this season. He had 52 last year. He's now five games through. And again, I, you know, I don't know how you guys would define a sample size of the NFL season, but I think, you know, a, a third of the season or, or you know, 30% of the season, I consider that a sample size uh, or close to it. And Patrick Mahomes is now on pace for 35 total touchdowns. So people were paying a premium of drafting him at like, you know, 16th or 17th overall. He might've been going ahead of Dalvin Cook. Yeah. He's arguably been the fantasy MVP other than, Christian McCaffrey, who's just ridiculous. Um, so um, I still think there is so much depth year to year, and it's a roster construction tool that I I am a big proponent of waiting on your quarterback. Okay, let's go to the next one about running backs. Obviously, the top people taken in most fantasy drafts early are running backs. What do you think about, when you think about running backs, do you think about, I'll call them the quality of the running back, or do you think about, like someone like Chris McCaffrey, who you know is going to be used on so many plays. Yeah. How do you think about separating hey, yeah, how do you counterbalance out? sort of opportunity really versus opportunity yeah. and competition on the team versus the actual quality of the running back? That's a great question. Yeah, yeah, I tend to like it. It's I guess it's not to, not to skirt the question, but it's somewhere in between. And what I mean by that is, um, I think, I'm trying to think exactly who it is that uh, I follow. So many fantasy analysts on Twitter, so I apologize or not knowing specifically who it was that um, I think sort of puts, puts a sort of makes this his own metric. But the idea being that like a target, it's almost like a touch, a touch tally and a carry. Uh, let's say like you just, you're always looking for volume and opportunity and talent, right? Uh, which is kind of the hardier question. Um, but like a, a reception is almost worth, or a target is almost worth twice as much as a carry because you play in PPR scoring. Obviously, a you know one yard ca- uh, catch for one yard is equal one point one point. A rush for one yard is equal to point one point. So um, I do always, always, always have volume and opportunity at the forefront of my mind. But you can't compromise entirely on talent and vice versa. If there's a guy who may not be getting that much work but is super talented, I'm going to bank on the possibility of his team sort of wisening up and using him more and more. Well, let's now make a transition to the real football, the regular season. Um, how do you see things right now in the regular season? Shane and I, in the first half hour, we're talking about we have two undefeated teams in the NFL. Um, we could call them both the Patriots if you'd like. Well, either way, it's the Patriots and the Jimmy Garoppolo-led 49ers. But how much have we learned? I mean, what we talked about is the Patriots have beaten the Dolphins, who have zero wins. 
the Jets who have zero wins, the Redskins who have zero wins, the Steelers who have one win. They have one good win at Buffalo, no doubt about it. The 49ers have beaten the Buccaneers, the Giants. I mean, they've beaten a bunch of weaker teams too. How do you see the NFL? Who are the elite teams in your mind in the NFL right now? Yeah, so on the let's go one by one with those two teams and then kind of put a pin in the whole conversation. With the Patriots, first of all, um, you know, our sample size for the Patriots is 20 years. And not that everything that happened with, you know, the 2001 or 2007 Patriots has any relevance whatsoever, but the point being the infrastructure is certainly very good. You know the coaching staff is outstanding. Bill Belichick, you know, the greatest coach in the history of sports. Um, Tom Brady, you know, even if uh, he's he, – I think he actually has had back-to-back weeks with, an end, with a uh, red zone interception. He hasn't done that. Uh, back-to-back weeks with a red zone interception after going – three years with a combined two red zone interceptions. So, um, you know, some, some uh, iffy play from Brady over the past two weeks uh, in the red zone specifically. That being said, guys, um, you, you trust the offense. You think they'll figure, out, figure it out. And defensively, I don't know how anybody could look at two touchdowns in five games, two in five games, and not think that's a sign of an excellent defense, okay? They're like – I don't care who you're playing. You know the Bears, who are an amazing defense. They allowed three touchdowns to the Raiders without two of their best offensive linemen and their number one wide receiver last week when Darren Waller, their tight end, was totally held down. By the way, we can add in the Super Bowl, where, as far as I remember, they allowed zero touchdowns in that game to the Rams. That's right. So you've got, I mean, it's six games with two touchdowns. You know, I, I just think, like, generally speaking, we should... We, we can meet in the middle. Like, it, it, I think sometimes, and this is just, I think this is a fact here, like, there's Patriots fatigue, right? So people just don't want to, people don't want to necessarily support or buy into the Patriots this year because they just don't like them, which is fine. That's, you know, it's, that, that's sports for you, right? Well, not Shane Jensen, my co host yeah. here. He's, he's, I'm, ha- I'm all in for he's it. He's all I, in for this I, year I, and I every year. With, I, I agree with well, you. I think it's just kind of played out for most people. Sure. So, but I think other teams, I'm still a believer in the Chiefs. Um, I think the Tyree Kill injury has really reared itself over the past couple of weeks. He's been a big part of their offense for a long time, and being hurt as it has limited them. And then in the in the a, in the NFC, I think the Saints are an excellent team, and I'm reserving the right on judgment with the NFC West. Um, I had before the season uh, the Eagles were my my pick in the NFC East, and I'm not ready to change that. I think if anything, I feel better about that now. Um, they've got secondary issues, but. You know, that, that's, that's been the case. They had them last year, and they, they nearly made it to the NFC Championship game. Um, and the NFC West, the reason why I'm reserving judgment is I want to see them against each other. And that's I, I know that's that's a cop-out. but well, And that's well, coming right gonna, up. Yeah, we're, we're going to see it this week. Field, unfortunately, we have to run here. But well, first of all, thank you for everything you do, both with your podcast, what you do on ESPN2, the enjoyment you give. I'll be personal here. The enjoyment you give our family. And so thank you for joining us here this morning on Wharton Moneyball. All right, guys. Thank you for the support. We'll do it again sometime soon in the future. Thank you so much. This has been Field Yates. We have half the show to go. Stay with us and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. Here with, this morning with my co-host, professor of statistics, Shane Jensen. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Adi Weiner, here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. 
And, of course, this is a call-in show if you want to join the conversation. There's three ways to really to join the conversation. One is to call in. That's 1-844-WARDEN. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also call, uh, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com, or you can tweet at us at WMoneyBall. So, Shane, um, the next guest is actually obviously one that will be very interesting from your and my perspective because he's both sat in our seat and now sits in a real job seat, if you'd like. Um, so we're honored to bring to Wharton Moneyball Eric Eager. Uh, Eric is a senior data scientist for Pro Football Focus, where he analyzes data for all 32 teams, as well as college 60 college football teams. And of course, before joining Pro Football Focus, he was a professor in the Department of Math and Statistics at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse, where he's published over 20 papers in mathematical biology. So Eric, uh, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. Uh, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Eric, Shane, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So all of our listeners who, you know, listen to someone now that's at Pro Football Focus want to hear about, they always want to hear about your career path. So you, could you tell us your career path, obviously, how you became a statistician, what got you interested, what led you to an academic career, and then what led you to Pro Football Focus? Yeah, it's, it's you know, people ask me this all the time, and I almost, uh, I almost always say, like, don't try to replicate it, but... Um, I was a college football player. I played in northern Minnesota uh, for a Division II school, and I had a serious injury. Uh, and as a result, I actually started taking my studies seriously uh, and found that I really enjoyed um, mathematics. And uh, I had this, like, um, I don't know, realization that I was almost done with college and I had yet to, like, really learn all that much. Uh, and so I decided to go uh, to get a PhD in math. Um, and at the time uh, where I went to University of Nebraska, the applied mathematics was almost all biology. Uh, and so that was, you know, kind of where I cut my teeth. Uh, I studied basically anything in biology, you know, ecology, environmental biology, gene regulatory networks. Uh, and then I luckily got a job at University of Wisconsin La Crosse right out of grad school. Uh, that was, that's where my wife uh, grew up, and so I was like one of the few academics that got to choose where they lived geographically. Um, and then while I was there, I, you know, I, I, I like to say I like, packed in, you know, 30 years of wanting what I wanted to do as a professor into about six. And, and as such, I got a decent amount of opportunities to do consulting, and one of them was PFF. Uh, and eventually, I found out that you know, what we now call data science, machine learning, and all of that was really what everybody was trying to do. Uh, and so I did that for some government agencies. I did that for some private companies. And then eventually uh, I started to like my football work more than I liked my other work. Uh, and so in July of last year, I ended up moving to PFS, and that's where I'm at now. So uh, we're going to bring back, uh, Eric, just a little bit better connection here. But, Shane, it's an interesting discussion because, you know, I'm sure both of us sit here in our full-time jobs and think, you know, um, if but for this career, you know, you're obviously yeah. younger than me, but I'm saying, you know, 20 years ago, there just weren't these opportunities for, I'll call them real jobs with pro football focus, with sports teams, et cetera. And now 20 years later, there's this unique opportunity. Yeah, no, and I mean, I kind of, I, it's a wonderful time to be kind of be kind of quantitatively minded and, 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 and trained in, in, in statistics and numeracy, because I, I do think the kind of opportunities that afford you outside academics, as you sort of said, I mean, 20 years ago when I was sort of, when I was deciding whether to become a professor or, or what to do, the kind of non-academic jobs just didn't seem to afford the kind of intellectual freedom and interest that I could become a, could have as an academic. Um, 
And now I think, you know, I mean, I still do very much value the intellectual freedom I have as an academic, but there's so many kind of cool sort of enterprises with data out there. I mean, I, you know, pro football focus being one of them, but in, in sports in general, there's so many different things, you know, jobs that you can do where you can kind of scratch that intellectual itch, but also be working in a, a kind of substantive way where you can actually kind of see your impact in the sport that you're working in or in whatever endeavor you're interested working in. Well, so, uh, Eric, now that you're back on the line, let me transition from what Shane just said to your job now at Pro Football Focus, which is um, you obviously know what it's like to be an academic. You know what it's like to publish academic articles. This is one of the questions I always love to talk to people that work in industry. How much of your time do you get to spend, if any, just working on, I'll call it, whether you're going to publish it or not in a peer-reviewed journal is a separate issue, on academic-related stuff, or what, what, what you and I would both call basic research versus their stuff you have to do as part of your job. Uh, yeah, and that's always the balance that you have to have. Um, for me, I would say I'd estimate it, I'm very fortunate, I'd estimate it at about 33% to 50%, depending upon the time of year. During the, during the season, it's very much maintenance of a lot of the models that we uh, give to our stakeholders, so NBC for Sunday Night Football and Notre Dame Football, uh, the other networks, as well as the teams. Like that is a decent amount of my uh, of my time. But even then, by the time it gets to Wednesday and all the hay is in the barn for the week of the for the football season, I get to do research almost entirely the rest of the week, um, give or take uh, a few things I have to write up for the website and stuff. So I'm very fortunate. And again, it's sort of one of those things where. Um, uh, you, know, you were talking about just now, the academic freedom that I got as an academic was something I don't think I appreciated as much as I should have, but I still get a great deal of freedom here. And for those who are quantitatively minded, there are so many opportunities to, to do um, you know, data science, statistics, mathematics. It's really such a seller's market that employers sort of have to be, uh, you know, they, they have to, in some sense, kowtow to what we want as, as you know, people who are doing math because it's a relative shortage of people uh, like us that are in in private industry. Yeah, no, no, it's absolutely a great point. Definitely about a seller's market. One of the questions I want to ask you, building on your last point, um, and this is a question I get all the time when I work for you know lots of consulting firms and practical problems. How do you know when a model is broken? Like one of the questions I always wonder. You said you have to you know tweak and work on the models. I assume Pro Football Focus has had models for a while. Is there something you look at? Like you know the games will be played on Saturday if it's college NFL on Sunday, and you look at the output of a model and whether it's an outlier diagnostic or a fit diagnostic, or you use it for out of sample prediction and you say, wow, the model's not predicting as well as it used to. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners use statistical models for decision-making. How do you know when things need tweaking? I mean, it's, it's all of the above. It's like, you know, I, I think, for example, the other day we had an issue. I can't remember what it was, but with our expected points model where I was, you know, I, I run a bunch of tests about like how these things perform. And this one like went from, you know, you know, relatively reasonable number to something that was way out of whack and as a result of one game, right? So you know that that's going to be a problem. There's also, you know, just the fact that like you see non-stationarity in your data. So, and that could be, and then that's what makes football so much fun is that there's maybe non-stationarity in the actual game of football, and then there might be non-stationarity in the way that your either your group is collecting data or or in the way that it's being processed by your your models and your algorithms. So 
that's always like something that we are constantly testing for. Um, you know, whether it's like the integrity of the grades, which is our sort of main product, but also, you know, whether or not like our game predictions are, you know, uh, acting the way that we expect them to with respect to changes in input data. It's all of the above really. Right. And, and, and as you know, like you actually never know if a model's right, you know, and in fact, they're mostly all wrong. Some are useful, um, but they're nice diagnostics that you can, you know, if you, if you've worked with the data and you've worked with the subject matter enough, like, you know, what's, what the reasonable bounds of expectation are. And anytime you get something outside of those, uh, you know, you know when to, you know, throw up a flag. And that's that's why subject, I know Nate Silver got in trouble this week for, for saying subject matter expertise is worth something like 49% of the job, but it's it's a higher percentage than I think a lot of people realize. Well, Eric, this is exactly, this is one of those things where as a host of a show, you say, thank you to the guests for giving you the softball for the next question. I was going to ask you, how much does your having played football impact your ability to be a good data scientist. Like I was going to use your example. Let's imagine the next person comes along who's got a PhD in math, like you, who does work in mathematical biology, but knows nothing about football. Can that person, she or he, become an effective data scientist at Pro Football Focus, or do they need to, as you said, you you observe the results and you're like, this makes no sense. So how much? Two part question. How much does your playing? having played help you as a data scientist and number two can someone with just a math background that wants to get in a job like this kind of learn on the job well i, th I think it's both i mean in, in the sense of like when i played i i played i was a run blocking tight end and i and i thought that i thought that i thought that my job mattered more than my job as a receiver and as i grew you know analyzing the data i realized that my my you know and my opinions, which are more firm than somebody who didn't play the game because of my experience, were wrong, and I needed to unlearn those things. And so there's sort of both sides. It's a double-edged sword in the, in the sense that, like, I, I do know a fair amount about the game for playing it, but, but I also am probably, if I'm wrong, I'm probably more wrong and more unlikely to admit that, and, and so my biases can be actually more lethal when I'm, when I'm incorrect. Um, that being said, if you come at if you come from football, I do think that there's like this nice sweet spot where you have enough of have enough inexperience where you can offer fresh insights. So like for me, I'm a mathematician. I didn't know a ton about biology. Almost every single problem that I studied from biology, I had to learn from somebody else. Or and but my insights were often fresh because I didn't I wasn't like I didn't have these like firmly held beliefs about the about the space. So um, I think you know. I, I've always told people, learn the math first, learn this, you know, statistical, uh, you know, techniques first, and then, you know, learn the subject matter. But ultimately, the subject matter expertise matters. It's just which bias, you know, which side of the coin do you come from? And both have their pluses and their minuses. Uh, this is uh, Shane Jensen. It's interesting that you bring up kind of the, the biases that can kind of uh, sink in through kind of just historical convention or your own experiences. What do you kind of feel like right now? Looking at either college or pro football, what's the what's an example of a historical convention that you think you know from now your data analyst kind of perspective is is, is flawed but still being used out there? Well, one of them. I mean, I'm, the easy one is the run game, so I'm going to ignore that. But like the the one that I that that upturned the way that I thought about football was evaluating quarterbacks on how they perform under pressure. So, you know, we always talk about, um, you know, I want to see this guy 
under extremely bad circumstances so I know how he'll react. And the problem is, it's just historically that data is extremely noisy. So um, because pressure happens to a quarterback in a ton of different ways, none of which might you know depend upon the quarterback. You can get a, a, a you know you can get pass rush through a blitz, and then if you beat the blitz, the defense is vulnerable, so a quarterback can do well. You can get pressure from a four-man front, and then the defense is actually pretty strong on the back end. And none of those things are really dependent upon how good the quarterback is. Whereas if you look at quarterbacks from a clean pocket, so a pocket where he does not face pressure, it's more about just him against the defense. And we learn so much more about the quarterback in those circumstances. And that's led us historically to have biases against guys like Patrick Mahomes, who played quarterback in the, in the Big 12, where there's a lot of clean pockets, a lot of passing, the air raid. Um, you know, we, we've seen that historically, like Kyler Murray, although he did end up getting drafted number one, the odds for him to get drafted number one were something like plus 300 when the, when the uh, season uh, finished in 2018. So, like, just something like that, whereas I, I, I honestly believe that as well. I thought, you know, if a quarterback wills when under pressure, like, that's something repeatable and that's something that's bad about a quarterback, when in reality it's, it's not. It's something that's pretty noisy, and we just remember the times where he either was amazing under pressure or was poor under pressure. That's uh, that's yeah. That, I I I completely agree, and I kind of I, I that that kind of echoes a little bit uh some of some of my own observations. The other thing that you brought up early in our conversation that that kind of intrigued me is you you mentioned this kind of concept of non-stationarity and how you're constantly having to sort of adapt to your sort of viewpoint as, as the season progresses. Specific to the NFL season so far, what have you kind of seen that what what whether it's a specific team or a specific player that kind of has really that you think has really sort of changed your opinion compared to what you sort of thought coming into the preseason? Well, I I think the NFL just drastically changes when quarterbacks aren't healthy. And it just shows that how, you know, the number of quality quarterbacks in the NFL is a pretty, like it's, it's a number somewhere between 15 and 25. And it's and it's pretty like and you go over you know you have you you get down to ten of those players and it changes the game drastically. So I remember you know when we were looking at you know Vegas totals for games in 2017, it was a pretty like normal like you, you saw them dip a few points and, and you know people were writing articles about how you know uh, scoring in football was over all this kind of stuff. And in reality, it's just like a handful of quarterbacks that are really good ended up getting hurt, not playing very much. And then in 2018, we saw. You know, for example, we saw scoring really high in the league for the first, I think, 11 weeks or so. And then to sort of catch up on penalty counts, they started calling like one additional holding penalty on a run play in the first half of almost every game. And then scoring dipped another, I can't remember how many how many points it was, two or three. And, and then this season, we've, of course, had the, all the quarterback injuries and we're seeing scores sort of on the lower end relative to 2018 as well. So it's it's literally like these little small changes in the game uh, whether it be penalties being called or, um, you know, the kickoff rule has been another one where they moved it out to the 25 and we've seen a, you know, a relatively drastic change in the game. And, and as well as, you know, just, you know, quarterbacks getting hurt, which I think is a major part of the game, but it's, it's all of those things. And the, the margins are not particular, the margins are thin there. It's just one player on, uh, on a team full of 53 of them. 
So we're talking to Eric Eager. Eric is a senior data scientist for Pro Football Focus, where he analyzes data for all NFL and college teams. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WARDEN. That's 1-844-942-7866. Eric, I want to ask you, I know you've done a little bit of thinking about uh, coaching. Isn't what you just said possibly the value of coaching? I mean, in my view, you look at a team like the New Orleans Saints. And you see the job that's been done there without Drew Brees. And you've got, not saying Teddy Bridgewater, Teddy Bridgewater may actually be in that set of 25, but he's not a starting quarterback. You look at the job, you know, he's gotten a lot of criticism, but you look at the job that, you know, I call him Riverboat Ron has done with the Carolina Panthers. I mean, they lost their first two games and now have won three straight games with a backup quarterback. Certainly, we look at the Indianapolis Colts, who were shocked at the beginning of the season when Andrew Luck retired. Now we see Jacoby Brissett doing the job. So what are you, what is your thinking about both these backup quarterbacks and those teams and what possibly it says about the coaching in those teams. Yeah. And conversely, you saw a guy like, you know, Matt Ryan of the Falcons who with Kyle Shanahan in 2016, is the MVP of the league. And now, you know, the Falcons are consistently a team that underachieves because, you know, they don't have that fulcrum of their, of their offense in, in the offensive coordinator. You also have, you know, Russell Wilson, who, I think everybody, you know, who follows the game knows that, you know, from an analytical perspective knows that Seattle is not necessarily doing it optimally in terms of running the football on first and second down. And yet he, that offense's results are stable with respect to perturbations to that quarterback because he's, you know, supersedes a lot of things. So you're absolutely right. And, and coaching is, is something that I think is extremely hard because, you know, you know, the way that we do it currently is basically we take our player grades and we think, okay, what is expectation for this particular play? And then how does the team do uh, relative to expectation? And then we do some sort of, you know, clustering to sort of throw out plays that are pretty noisy uh, and so on and so forth. And we get a pretty decent idea of who's coaching above expectation. But this is very interesting, Eric. This is very interesting because I'm going back to what, you know, my home department of marketing. Essentially, that's how we kind of measure what we in marketing call brand equity, which is what are the expectations based on observables that we can for a given brand? And then anything above that, we kind of attribute to the, I'll call it the unmeasurable brand value. And you're kind of saying what you guys do is to say, here's an expectation on a play. You trim off some, you know, random type plays and then the rest of the value you know, without a better explanation, maybe is given to the coach. Do I have that approximately right? Yeah, and there, and there, there are some issues with that, of course, because, like, we don't know. For example, I think it's probably more valid on the offensive side of the ball where it's, things are less correlated. Quarterback basically controls a decent amount of it, and then the other things are very secondary and tertiary. On defense, like, I, I'm open to the idea that, five average players playing well together is worth more than the sum of the parts and it might not be coaching but for now like the assumption is is it's coaching which um you know ultimately when we produce these lists the, the names sort of make sense and the guys that are on the bottom of the list end up not you know being a coach for very much longer and and, and so on and so forth but yeah i mean it's exactly what you're describing you just look at what you would expect given baseline fundamentals and take the difference and I, and I assume I just kind of because these kind of coaching sort of uh, evaluations are so intriguing to me. Like I, I assume some of the you know the the sanity check of Belichick is probably evaluated very highly. Uh, uh, are present there? Are, were there kind of any surprises that came out of that evaluation for you, coaches? That you kind of relative to your own expectations about coaches going in are particularly underrated or overrated. 
Uh, well, Andy Reid was somebody who I always thought, you know, was a good coach. I didn't think that he was, and this is prior to actually the Mahomes years, which you actually see that, you know, the positive correlation there, the, the, the uh, interaction term positive for the Mahomes and uh, Andy Reid uh, uh, pair. But, like, he was always, you know, top in, in, those, in those sort of, like, lists. And I always thought, well, yeah, he struggles with the two-minute drill all this kind of stuff, and you're like, well, the two-minute drill is only, you know, four sixtieths of the game, right? So, you know, you, on the rest of those plays, he's, and, and Andy Reid's record in games that are decided by over a touchdown, I believe, was either top top two or top three during the course of his time with Kansas City with Alex Smith at quarterback. So that was one that popped up that I think was surprising. I thought he was good. I didn't know that he was great. Um, uh, and another one is like, and, and this is, again, makes me question things, but like Josh McDaniel for New England, um, you sort of go back, and obviously Brady's great, but you, you look back and say, well, they've had a lot of perturbations to that offense. Uh, Rob Gronkowski's in, he's out. You know, they, their wide receiver core, their best receiver last year got suspended. Their best receiver the year before had an ACL injury, and their production offensively is pretty stable. And, and so, like, he gets a decent amount of that credit. So, uh, you know, and then the other thing is the non-stationarity. So I know Norb Turner got run out of town in Minnesota in 2016, but his actual, uh, to the point of uh, Kyle Allen and, and Riverboat Ron, Carolina's been pretty effective offensively the last two years with him as coach, despite the fact that Cam Newton has been one of the more inaccurate throwers in the NFL, and they're starting now a backup quarterback. So uh, we actually have a caller here on Wharton Moneyball, Kelly from Houston. So, Kelly, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Brado. I'm here with my co-host Shane Jensen. Of course, we're talking to Eric Eager, a senior data scientist from Pro Football Focus. So, Kelly, uh, what's your question? My question is, around time management in football and we often you know hear how important it is to manage the clock you know particularly timeouts and we have bill o'brien here in houston and he doesn't pass the eye test on time management but i'm interested in how quantifiable that is and how how much of an impact that has on the outcome of a game kelly thank you for your question so eric um Tell us, uh, is that one of the things that, you know, as you guys were evaluating coaches and thinking about things that affect win probabilities, do you guys take a close, detailed, analytical look at time management? Uh, well, from the perspective of building the win probability models, timeouts are huge. Um, I can't remember exactly the point total worth of a timeout, but um, it, it's, you know, we're talking about full points in, in some instances. Um and so it's it's a great question because it not only manifests itself at the end of games, but it also manifests itself at the beginning of halves. So, for example, the question is: is okay if you're if it's first if third down and ten from your own twelve yard line, and you know the clock's you know uh, dripping down to zero, do you call a timeout and and keep those five yards in a situation where your conversion probability is pretty low to begin with, or do you or do you just allow those five yards to come off the clock? And we know the expected points of five yards in those situations, uh, and then and then pump the ball, you know, not convert third down generally, and then pump the ball away. Those are situations where you know, again, that calculation is important. Um, so it, it's 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 huge. And and I would say though that in where where I've studied, you know, the time management aspect aspect of it is the most maddening, and it is like the most it's it's tough, but football is such a low sample size game that we found so much more predictability in a team's ability to win or lose games decided by more than one score. And so, like, I've found more predictive power in looking at coaches and how they perform in those situations 
and then basically just assuming any game that's close is a 50-50 proposition. That's so time management is like it shows really, you know, uh, openly to us. But I think what happens, the other minutes of the game are far more important. And that's where we see sort of the brilliant coaches sort of accumulate edges. Well, we want to thank Kelly from Houston for his question. And yeah, it brings up, you bring up a great point, Eric, about how, you know, I've always done this, uh, you know, screamed at the television scream all the time. When it's like third and 15, you're like, oh my God, we can't go back another five yards. You're not going to get the third and 15 anyway. Third and 20, you, the, the timeout yeah. is more valuable than the five yards. And many of us, at least, that watch it from a fan perspective have wondered that. And we, I think, you know, you, you brought up Andy Reid earlier. I think he's a great example of this, where it's kind of Clear that he is a co. He's a great coach in terms of scheming and getting the best out of his players, but you know you watch his games and some of his. I mean, I remember watching his games back when he was coach of the Eagles. It was maddening to see some of the time management that happened. Yeah, and, and he's had the same situations. Um, I believe in both at home against Baltimore in Week Three and on the road against Detroit in Week Four, where he's ended up having to kick field goals with like 15 seconds left in the first half, as opposed to actually being able to take chances to score a touchdown. So it, 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 but at the same time, like ultimately speaking, like those three points don't matter as much as the 30 in the middle of the game. So Eric, let me move on to maybe our last topic, but it's a very big topic. So I like to ask anybody that works in the data science profession about the future of analytics. Let's call it in this case in football. So I would say, um, there's one of three ways things are going to, in quotes, get better in the future, and I'd love to have your thoughts about which one you see as the biggest frontier. One is we're going to get better data in the future. That's one possibility. The other is we're going to do better math in the future. In other words, we're going to build better models. The third is it's not about data or math. Um, everybody's going to wake up and realize, hey, you know what? We really need this analytics stuff, and it's going to get used more often. So when you project your job and what Pro Football Focus is going to be doing, let's say, five years from now, will it be better data that will have moved the needle, better math that will have moved the needle, or better clients that will have moved the needle? Well, I think we're seeing a little bit of all three, right? I mean, uh, PFF, what we do is sort of that play-by-play. -play. You know, we have analysts grading players, but, you know, you guys had Brian Burke on a couple weeks ago. They and Michael Lopez as well. The NFL is giving us next-gen stats, which is sort of tracking data for, for football players. Um, you know, I think one of the next frontiers is, is doing sort of the Astro Ball, and we've sort of looked at this already, but like basically this idea of taking scouts' notes and, and using them as a, you know, with the text analytics and, and that kind of thing to better understand how guys project from college to pro. Um, but, you know, so I think data is going to be a huge thing. And you can't, in, in my opinion, and again, like this is coming from somebody who proved theorems for, you know, for a while, like you can't, you can't do much without data. And, and, and often, and the stakeholders are not going to be swayed necessarily uh, until you wow them in their field. And there are just some parts of football that, you know, data is, you know, difficult to use in. So we just have to collect data, better data in those circumstances. So um, I do think... Go ahead. Yeah, no, no. Please finish. And and I think the math thing, it, yeah, the, we are going to develop better tools. We're going to get – obviously, we continue to get smarter analysts. I'm continuously amazed. I look on Twitter and the people who, um, you know, could be doing anything, doing football. Uh, that is extremely, um, you know, awesome to see, very rewarding to see. Uh, so I do think we're going to have better math. And then the, ad, uh, the ad adoption is important, and I think that's something that we've really wanted to do um, you know, at PFF is make sure that 
the questions that we answer are coming from football people because, again, that shows like we all often in analytics get this idea that we're disrespectful towards the game and all that kind of stuff when I want to say, well, no, we're testing all of your hypotheses, right? And, and, and so I think it's all three, but to me, it's mostly it's data. It's, a, it's, it's collecting the right data, and then I think after that, you know, all the other things sort of fall in place. And maybe just as a last question, how do you watch football? You know, whether it's college football, pro football, are you able to watch it purely? Well, first of all, let me start with who are your teams? I mean, I assume for college it might be Nebraska or, or I mean, who are your college teams? Who are your pro teams? And are you able to watch it as a regular fan or do you watch it as a data scientist? Uh, a little of both. I mean, I grew up in Minnesota, so I grew up a Vikings fan. But honestly, I think like they broke my heart so many times that when I moved to Nebraska, I started to actually like a team, which was Kansas City. Uh, back, and, and even though they were bad at the time, I really enjoyed going to their games and things like that. So I would consider myself a Chiefs fan. Although, again, I, I almost always root for, you know, I almost always root for the things I think are going to be right to be right. And of course, you know, that that is about as fruitful as rooting for a team in general. So, um and in college football, I didn't, you know, I played. So oftentimes, like I, in my college years, I never actually got to watch other people play college football. But I, I would say now uh, I'm really into Oklahoma. I like the way that they run their offense. I, I, I just love the scoring. Uh, and, and the things that we found out about how to evaluate quarterbacks makes their offense a very fruitful place to look at quarterback play. Well, Eric, we'd like to thank you for joining us this morning on Wharton Moneyball. We've been talking to Eric Eager. Eric is a senior data scientist for Pro Football Focus, and as Eric mentioned, um, in some sense seems like a regular guest we have from Pro Football Focus every week. Uh, he spends time analyzing data for both the NFL and college football. Uh, so, Eric, we'd like to thank you for joining us this morning on Wharton Moneyball. Thanks for having me, guys. So uh, that's been three quarters of our show, which means we have a quarter to go, which includes our Moneyball matchups. i got a bunch of NBA stuff to talk to Shane about, so stay with us and join us after the break. Back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor Shane Jensen from the Statistics Department, some combination of the two of us. Cade Massey and Adi Weiner here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, Replayed throughout the week. Listen to our podcast, Wharton Moneyball. And thanks again to Kelly from Houston who called in. And again, if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, uh, Shane, one sport we haven't talked much about or any about this morning, which is starting to gear up and get ready, is the NBA. So there are two NBA topics I wanted to talk to you about. One is kind of what I would call the discrepancy between the analysts and the betting lines. So let me give you an example. I, yesterday, I went on to 538, pretty reasonable place yep. to get predictions, and they gave predictions for the NBA season. And as people don't know, they give a lot of things. They give what they call their Carmelo rating, which is, think of it as a ELO-type rating that says the strength of a team. They also give a projected win-loss. They also give a projected chance of making the playoffs, chances of making the finals, chances of winning the finals. Um, I, I don't think you've, you can see my piece of paper. Mm -hmm. um, who do you think that the 538 has as the number one team in the NBA, measured by, let's just say, chances of winning the finals? Uh, Clippers? Uh, the Clippers are... One, two, three, four, five—the sixth most favored oh, wow. team. I really, I, and I, by the I, way, I blew that one. Right. Well, just to show you, no, no, this is what I wanted to talk about. Yeah. What again? I'll go back to my economist way of thinking about how this can be rationalized. If you look at the betting lines, they're the favorite 
at plus 450. By the way, only plus 450, yeah. which from a historical perspective, that might seem reasonable. But we've been living through five years where the Golden State Warriors were like minus 120. Yeah, no, and I mean, it's an exciting time, I think, for the NBA because I do kind of feel like we're we're in that kind of transition stage where the next dynasty hasn't actually coalesced. All right, yet, so right? we get we get another you you, you get another guess. It's yeah. not the Clippers. That's number one on 538. Uh, I'm so West focused, but uh, Lakers. The Lakers are the third most favorite team. All right. Um, geez, uh, Bucks. The Bucks are the fourth most favored team. Oh, geez. Uh, I don't know. Uh, Sixers? Sixers. Sixers. It is the Sixers. It's the Sixers? It's the Sixers. At really? At 27%. What? 27%. And, of course, the okay. betting lines have the Sixers as the fifth most favored. So this wow. is what I wanted to ask yeah, you. Yeah. I just yeah. wanted to ask you for just a second. Who do you think – let's forget – the bench, let's forget coaching, let's forget anything else. Who do you think has the best starting five right now in the NBA? And here are the three the three teams that came to my mind. I probably yeah. should have listed the Clippers, too. We have the Rockets. They have P.J. Tucker, Clinton Capella, Russell Westbrook, James Harden, Eric Gordon. We've got the Clippers. Not the Clippers, sorry. We've got the Lakers. LeBron James, Anthony Davis, Dwight Howard, Danny Green, and Rajon Rondo. We've got the Sixers, Joel Embiid. Ben Simmons, Al Horford, Tobias Harris, and Josh Richardson. If you had to take one of those starting fives, who would you take? I think it's got to be the Lakers. For me, and anyway. Kuzma. I left out Kuzma for the Lakers yeah. as well. Who may, who's uh, I, maybe he's going to start. Maybe you would take the Lakers. I think I would take the Lakers in that. Though I mean, those are three great lineups. I got to say. I mean, I could see any of those, any of those lineups definitely winning it all. But I, I, I got. I mean, I'm very LeBron biased, but I got to take. the And Lakers. by the way. Notice we, we've been talking, and we haven't spent a second talking about the Warriors, yeah. who, remember, they still have Steph Curry. Yeah. They still have Draymond Green. Clay Thompson will be coming back this season. Do you give them no shot? I mean, not no oh, shot, no, but I, I, any I, shot? I, I give them a substantial shot. I just think it's sort of like, I mean, I think part of it is they're not going to have... Um, I mean, Durant has been such a huge part of their kind of championship success over the last couple of years, as well as Clay Thompson only, you know, the uncertainty about how he, in what form he comes back. I, I think that kind of drives them down a bit. And I think it's also just sort of like, I, I guess, like warrior exhaustion or something like that. Part of my brain wants to just sort of see some new teams up there. Um, and, and I haven't so even I mentioned they have D'Angelo Russell as yep. well. So, I yep. mean, they've got some talent. Oh, yeah. They've got talent. And, you know, that talent, remember, won them a champion. Won them, you know, they won one before Durant was there. Oh, that's so, certainly I mean, true. You know, so we'll see how that goes. We have another caller. Uh, we have someone that I think, assuming i looking at my screen right, it's someone I know well. It sounds I think it's my cousin Alec from Tampa. So, Alec, uh, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Well, good morning, guys. How you doing? Well, Excellent. It's all, we're always doing great in the city of Philadelphia. Well, let me tell you something. Last The last two nights at the Trop have been, uh, you know, if you think about the Rays, which they're the analytic darlings for you guys, but if you think about what the Rays have done, it's just astounding. You know, they have a $60 million payroll. Charlie Morton makes $15 million of that. So basically for $45 million, we've put a team together that is, you know, on the brink of a big game. To potentially, I'm not. I'm not bragging that we're going to be Houston in Game Five, but certainly we could 
push him. And I know Eric's happy because he wants to see Houston tired out, even if they, you know, even if they advance, he doesn't want to see him coming into the Yankee series fresh. Well, so, how do you see? How do you see? You know, Shane and I talked about it yeah. in the first half hour, Alec. How do you see Game Five? On the one hand, you could say the Rays have momentum. On the other hand, you could say momentum doesn't really hold in baseball. You know, I'll take Garrett Cole. Yeah, they've got momentum. Yeah, they've got Garrett Cole. You could also say they've got home field. If you had to put a probability on the Rays winning Game Five, how high would you put it? I'm going with the first statement which is that momentum, and that the Rays are – I'm going to give them a 90% chance of advancing. <laughs> All right. Well, All right. Well, I'm sure – you know, And listen, I gave you free money last night giving yeah. you that two-to-one on that bet. So um, betting for the Rays, obviously. Hypothetically, of course. Line. Hypothetically, okay. we're talking, of course. No, but, but, but listen, in all seriousness, here, here's the deal. This is what's stunning about the Rays. Now, remember, we do technically have three starting pitchers, but Snell and Glass now were injured for probably – you know, 50, 60% of the year. So really, we only had one true starter in Charlie Morton, and we had the third, I think it was the third best pitching staff in Major League Baseball. Houston, I think, had the second, or it could be, I think it was right there. Both teams were amazingly good. But they did it with, you know, you know, expensive pitchers. We did it with one, you know, $15 million pitcher and a bunch of arms. So what's going to happen in Game 5, I mean, think about it just for a second. I can see a scenario where if we can cobble – a few runs, and let's say we're leading three to two. I could see, um, you know, Snell pitching again. He was a great closer last night, and I could see Morton pitching the ninth inning like he did in, I think, a game seven of a World Series a few years, a couple years back. So, oh, I, I mean, I, I could certainly you know. see all those things happening too. I'm not sure I, I can see them at ninety percent probability, but I can certainly see them, and it does sort of speak. I think. I mean, the Rays are. You know, as a Red Sox fan, I, I, I can't really find myself cheering too hard for the Rays. But I do really kind of enjoy the success of these analytically driven teams because I, despite being a Red Sox fan, don't like kind of how the, the lack of equality in baseball. And I do sort of see data usage and data science as a great kind of equalizing force where teams like the Athletics or the Rays can kind of, you know, basically compete with payroll or or, 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 or counteract kind of the, the, the natural effects of payroll. It only gets kind of dangerous when teams like the Astros have both the analytics and the payroll to kind of throw around. But no, but, I, I, but, I think it yeah. is. It's, it, it's, it's the Rays and the Athletics this year are a great couple of success stories. I do, I do yeah, hope the Astros but, make it through them, though, so that the Astros can beat the Yankees for all of us. All right, we'll delete that. that comment. But, um, no, but, but honestly, if you think about it, it's not just the analytics. Look, look at last year. We got rid of Archer. Archer had a 5-0 ERA. We got Glasnow and Meadows in that deal. They're like two stalwarts of the team. So, I mean, the analytics are also backing. But, I mean, we're fleecing teams. The Rays have a way of building up these guys and then getting rid of them because they can't afford to sign them, you know. And, 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 and then reaping the rewards in using the analytics to draft good players and trade good players. But actually, the Rays are not a lot of homegrown talent. They have traded and traded and traded, you know. So it's, it's pretty exciting. I mean, the Trop gets a, a rap as being the worst uh, or the second worst stadium in baseball after the Oakland Coliseum. But let me tell you, the last couple of nights, it was it was rocking. I mean, it was really fun. Well, Alec, uh, then, obviously, uh, obviously, yeah. it's good to talk to you. I haven't talked to you since yesterday. Um, it's great yeah. to hear your voice. <laughs> and, of course, I've obviously, I'm rooting heavily for the Rays, not because I want to see the Rays play the Yankees, but I don't want to see the Yankees play the Astros. Um, but, of course, thank you for your call this morning on Wharton Moneyball, and uh, we'll be watching that Rays game very closely. And, 
And just remember, when we beat Houston and then we're up 3-0 on the Yankees, you're wearing Rays gear and bringing a broom to the trop for the sweep of the Yankees in uh, Game 4. Uh, I, I can buy into this scenario right here. I'm on board. I'm on board with that I've scenario. Already, I've right. already, I will commit here to our millions of listeners here on Morton Moneyball that if the Yankees are down, th- you beat the Astros and the Yankees are down 3 nothing. I will be at Game 4 in Tampa in Rays gear with a broom. I absolutely have promised and committed to that. Well, thank you for joining us. Anna no duels light. Anna no duels light. Well, that one I can't promise you. <laughs> right. I, I might have something a little bit stronger than that. But thank you for joining us this morning All on Morton right, Moneyball. Hey, hey, I'm leaving for I'm leaving for London in five, six hours. Well, you got to find a place book. to watch the uh, to watch the Rays game. All right, we'll so be watching. Yeah, we got it all set up. Thanks, man. All right, Thanks, nice guys. talking to you. So back to you know uh, Alex Call actually is interesting because I'm pretty sure if you ask most fans you would get a bimodal distribution. Like, you will get a group of people. I mean, he's joking when he says 90 to 10. It's not like he's betting 9 to 1 odds on the Rays. But you probably will get a lot of fans that say, the Rays have a 75-plus percent chance to win the game. And it's just, it can't be borne out in the data. It just can't. I understand you want to believe that. You want to believe momentum is possibly even a larger effect than the main effect of who was the better team in the regular season. Yeah. Who has the more proven, better starting pitching? Who's got the better offense and hitting? You you have to overcome all of that to even get the Rays to be a favorite. Forget yeah, no, and, and, and I think it's almost like it, it's funny. I always I feel like the language we use to describe kind of random outcomes is is it's almost like it's flawed linguistically we talk about like oh I can't imagine them getting past like you know uh, Garrett Cole. But of course, you know that even that statement, linguistic. I mean, you, what, what does that kind of statement imply? Like a 99 probability? It cannot be that high. And I, again, we, it, it's so we're we're so prone as humans and our analytical minds to try and create narratives and explain why random things happen when really we always kind of underestimate the true amount of randomness in any of these outcomes. Well, let's even Play take baseball, let, especially. Let's even, let's even take a scenario that Alec talked about to start with. Let's imagine they get a few runs early. Look, do you, let me just play out a simple scenario. Does does Garrett Cole walk batters? Yes. Yeah. Well, so does every pitcher. Yeah. Does Garrett Cole give up home runs? Yeah. Yeah. So let's imagine in the first inning, he walks the first batter, the second guy hits a home run. All of a sudden, it's 2 nothing Rays. Now, any reasonable statistical model would certainly have the Rays as a slight favorite oh, in yeah. the game yeah. if up 2 nothing early on in the game. Mm-hmm. So I'm just saying to say, I can't imagine a way that the Rays win the game. I can imagine a hundred yeah. ways the Rays win the game. Oh, yeah. And they're again, remember, they're not playing the game a thousand times. They're yeah. playing it once. And that's that's what makes sports exciting. But it is interesting to hear, you know, again, I'm a b- believer in momentum, but I've you've con- not convinced me. I know it's a third-order effect. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question. Would you rather have, this is just uh, before we move on to the, our last, our, our, our Moneyball matchups, would you rather be the home team? Or would you rather have won the last two games? I'm asking you for effect size. Which effect size do you think is bigger? In baseball? Ho- yeah, home field advantage or having been the team, if you believe in momentum at all, the team that's won the last two. Um, I guess acknowledging that neither of those two things, I think, are the primary factor to winning the game, I would rather have the last two wins and be away than I would I would. Than being the home team. That's very interesting. I would yeah. have guessed you would have said the opposite, but I'm interested. I'm, I'm the most pro momentum guy of the other co-hosts, man. <laughs> you right. get way more pushback on it than that with them. Wow, I think we're need to going to have yeah. more Brad Jensen shows. Yeah. We can That's talk right. a lot more about momentum. But speaking of momentum, 
Every week is different in the NFL, so now it's time for our Moneyball matchups. Now, of course, my cousin Alec called in to talk to us about the Rays, but let's be honest why he's going to London. Um, there is a game being played in London this week, and it is the Carolina Panthers at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So while he's with, to this morning, we talked about baseball. Um, we obviously he's there. Yeah, he's going- and, and that's actually a pretty intriguing matchup. I have. Yeah, what to do you say. think about that game? Um, I mean, you know, again, I, I think we're still sort of like we're, we're coalescing on, on I, I think both teams are high variance teams that we just have a lot of uncertainty about because, I mean, Carolina with with a, with their backup quarterback, but going on a 3-0 streak with that backup quarterback. And then, of course, with Jameis Winston, I mean, you just never know what you're going to get there. So, I mean, as far as making a prediction goes, um, Given that there really isn't any like home field advantages, I, I guess I would I would take Carolina in yeah, that. Yeah, they're the better. Of, te- I mean, I think they have the better defense, but I mean, it's going to be a close one. I think I, I think I, I could imagine that game. I'm going to predict a score for that game of like. 38-35 or something like that. That highest score. Yeah, I think so. Well, I that think would so. be that would be an exciting game to be at. So, what other games? Let's you know, just because we we're talking about yeah. cousin Alec, and we we're talking about Tampa, but there's got to be what games have really caught your eye as either interesting games or games. Let's be statisticians for a minute that will provide maximal information. Like, wow, I'm going to really know what that in team is. In terms of consequence and interest, the Eagles versus the Vikings, I think, is a ma- massive game this weekend. I mean, A, it'll provide, it'll certainly update our information about, I mean, I think both those teams have kind of also been high variance week to week, and so I think it'll provide extra information about what Kirk Cousins can do against a good defense, what Carson Wentz can do against a good defense, and also I think it's going to be a consequential game this even this early in the season because these are two teams that will be potentially, I mean, that we would consider at least in the wild card conversation for the playoffs. And this really, and just so our fans know, I mean, I know every all of our listeners know the NFL pretty well, but it's really a two-game swing because yeah. number one, you beat the other team, and number two, you have the tiebreaker. Yeah. Then and, against and the that, other that team. head-to-head tiebreaker is basically the most important tiebreaker when it comes to kind of the the wild card conversation. And so, I think it's a hugely consequential game for for that exact fact because you know I think we are kind of looking at the Eagles and Vikings as you know I mean either one of those two teams could could also win their division, but they are definitely projected to sort of be in the wild card conversation at the minimum also you see it you could see a scenario where you know if the eagles win that game and now all of a sudden the vikings are three and three the packers hold home field against the lions they go to five and one all of a sudden the vikings are two games back in the yep. division and so it, it's absolutely i, I think an abs i didn't actually realize that that game was this week yeah that is it's an a massive absolutely game massive game in the NFL this week. Look, the game that's caught my eye, but possibly for an entirely different reason, is the Redskin-Dolphin game. (laughs) Now, it's not because I'm going to get information on which team is good, but, and I only say this semi-facetiously, do either of these teams want to win that game? I mean, if you, I mean, neither of those teams is going to make the playoffs. That's certain. If you win that game, you now have a two-game loss lead in some sense on that other team. I mean, you've basically handed that other team potentially the number one pick in the draft. Are you? F- yeah, you've and, slept I mean, a couple it is interesting spots. because I mean, Miami is kind of being relatively open about tanking. You know, for that first uh, for that number one pick. I mean, I think they, they nobody would argue that they're 
trying to win. Whereas the Redskins at least came into this season, I don't think, as, as a team that thought thought that they were going to be competing for that number one draft pick next season. But now that they're at 0-4, or 0-5, sorry, um, you got to start thinking maybe, maybe it is actually, you know, worth kind of going for that top pick. Well, let me I would you- sort of, say, I would sort of say, I mean, you know, the the Redskins, I think, probably have more of an incentive to 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 play well and and, and win because they already kind of draw, they already drafted their quarterback of the future. Well, that's what I was going right? to ask. Who the Redskins? The, the Redskins. Well, that's what did. I was going to ask yeah. you. Is there any people would have said the Cardinals did yeah. that too? Is there any scenario where if the Redskins end up with the number one pick, you think they take Tua? As opposed to saying, you know, we're going to use it. Just r- yeah. reminds me of what the Cardinals yep. did, right? They drafted, I forget what is it, Josh uh, Allen, or Josh, uh, Josh, Josh Rosen, Al- Rosen, Rosen. Yeah, yeah. They drafted Allen's the one on the Bills. They drafted Josh Rosen, and then a year later, they drafted Kyler Murray. Yeah. Do you think that could happen again for I the don't Redskins? I think it will happen again. Um, a because I think Haskins, at least in my mind, was an even better prospect than and uh, than Rosen was last year. And also, they, I mean, Arizona had that perfect storm of the new coach coming in, where Kyler Murray was the great match to his style and everything. So no, I I don't think that will happen again. I think the Redskins would whatever they whatever draft pick that they get in next year's draft and it looks like it's definitely going to be a top 5 pick will probably go elsewhere than a quarterback with that pick. Um whereas Miami again probably is 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 definitely going for two or one of these other quarterbacks that are going to stand out next year. So I think the Redskins do have more of an incentive to win overall in the season whether that means they're going to win this week against the Dolphins. I mean, who knows. So let's go back to a game we briefly talked about earlier in the show because are is this team any good 49ers at Rams now I'm a little surprised to see that the Rams are favored by three and a half which means on a neutral field the Rams are a six-point favorite how do you see that game going I, I mean, see, I saw the I saw the Buccaneers drop fifty five on the Rams in no, that's at the right. LA Coliseum. That's right, and, but but I do think San Francisco is relatively untested so far this season. I mean, obviously, this is why I think it's an intriguing matchup. Is I think the Rams are going to give them a real test, um, and it's in San Francisco. You said no, no, it's in LA. It's in LA. Yeah, so I think I mean, not that that really matters. LA's got one of the worst home field advantages of all time. Um, I do think that the Rams probably will come out on that of that one. I kind of have more confidence in in their actual offense and defense, just based on mostly kind of like I still have a pretty strong prior coming into the season. So my prior on the Rams being one of the top five teams in in, in football is still pretty strong even through four or five games, where San Francisco, I mean, I think the reason they're kind of still being underrated is that they still need to prove it, I guess. You know, they they do look a lot better than they were last season, but against, you know, they haven't, like the Patriots, they haven't really played that many good teams yet. So I'm still kind of, I'm, I'm edging towards the Rams on that one. And maybe one last game we'll talk about is... Um, what about the Texans and Chiefs? What do you make of that game? As I, that's the other one I kind of highlighted. I, I am really excited. I mean, of course... The crux of it, what it's really going to come down to, is how healthy Mahomes is. There is also a chance Tyreek Hill makes it back for this game, I was reading. So that would be a, a, a big boost to their chances if Tyreek Hill could play. Um, and the Texans, I you know, I mean, they week to week, they've been all over the place. I think the Texans have a tremendous amount of talent. Like our caller Kelly, I don't think Bill O'Brien really passes the eye test to me as as a particularly a, a, a coach that really maximizes their probability of winning. But they have been they can play really strong, and this is another game that also has playoff consequences. 
Both these teams are probably going to the playoffs, but at what you know, seed? It, yeah, exactly. If if the Texans beat KC, all of a sudden we're starting to talk about them in the bye conversation. And they're both which four is obviously and two. a very we're the tiebreaker. And that would be also yeah, they basically gain two games on KC in the sort of bye conversation for the first round bye, which as we both know is the most important thing you can have going into the playoffs. By the way, this is why we have a producer, and thanks for that. Our producer listens to the show. That's good. Um, turns out the Rams are favored by three and a half, but they're at home, so it would be basically even yeah. on a neutral yep. field, yeah, not yeah, a six-point yeah, favorite. Yeah. So, what actually what's interesting to me is if you told most people at the beginning of the season that in Week Six that the Rams and the Forty ers would be basically even on a neutral field. Yeah. They would be shocked right. and say, wow, either the Rams are not as good as we thought or the 49ers are much better. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting, too, because the mo- the number one reason you kind of would would really non-stationarily move some a team like the Rams would be like key entries, but it really there haven't they, they been. Haven't it, been. It, it's more just been kind of mediocre defensive play in and some games. And bad play by Jared Goff. And, and kind of Jared Goff maybe coming back down to earth a little bit. Well, that's been two hours on Wharton Moneyball, my favorite two hours of the week. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics. On behalf of myself, my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen, our frequent host, Cade Massey, and of course, Adi Weiner, we'd like to thank you for joining us. Uh, We are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. live and replayed throughout the week. Between now and next week, enjoy your sports. Go Rays. Go Buccaneers. We'll see you next week on Wharton Moneyball.